0: Father, thank you for this morning that we can consider your word, and uh, Father, I pray that the words that are spoken this morning would only point to you, that you would open our hearts to what you would teach us this morning. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. It's a long passage, isn't it? And uh, I promise we're not going to go verse by verse. Uh, It won't take that long. But uh, I want to ask you this morning, what would make you happy? What would make you truly happy? I'm a simple person, uh, for me, if the goalies in my fantasy hockey team would actually stop a puck or two, I, I would be happy. Uh, but if I would ask you this morning, what, what is it that you are thinking about that would make you a lot happier today? Some of us might have some fairly deep, uh, maybe even spiritual answers to that question. Some of us might have a practical, you know, something... Uh, that, that really needs to happen in your life, that you feel like, that, that would just make me happier. Uh, maybe it's a financial thing, maybe it's a relational thing, a relationship that needs to be restored. Uh, maybe it's something physical, an illness. I, I don't know what it is for you this morning, but uh, this psalm is interesting because it, it really talks about who who will eventually be blessed. You know, who, who ends up, there was a phrase years ago in corporate America that they used to say, who gets the cheese? That's why I use the that title for the sermon. It's kind of who wins in the end? Who ends up happy? Who, who gets the good stuff when this is all over? And uh, I think this morning for all of us, there probably is a question like what would make us happier than we are right now? I, a number of years ago, I was in um, China and I was uh, teaching in a classroom doing some just sort of some fun stuff, uh, English language instruction. It looked more like VBS than than teaching really. And uh, a lot of fun, and one of the things that we did was we divided, we, we came up with some questions that we thought would divide the class in half, and then like half of them would answer one way, half would answer another way, and then they would, uh, we would have them vote, they would divide, and then they would have to do sort of a debate. And one of the questions that I asked that morning was, uh, I, I made the statement, married people are happier than single people, and, uh, and I asked them to vote, and it really was interesting. Um, I'll come back to that story at the very end of the sermon, but, uh, but there, was a, there was quite a division between, uh, just by asking that question. Who gets the cheese? Who eventually is happiest in the end? Who wins? And this psalm, I think, really does begin to answer that question for us in a lot of different ways. First off, notice how many times the phrase, inherit the land, is used in this psalm at least five times. Verse 9, for evil men will be cut off, but those who hope in the Lord will inherit the land. Verse 11, the meek will inherit the land and enjoy great peace. 22, those the Lord blesses will inherit the land, but those He curses will be cut off. Verse 29, the righteous will inherit the land and dwell in it forever. Verse 34, wait for the Lord and keep His way. He will exalt you to inherit the land. When the wicked are cut off, you will see it. Now that may not be a terribly relevant question for us this morning in terms of inheriting the land, Um, although I suppose in Wake County, in this real estate market, it wouldn't be a bad thing if you inherited (laughs) some land. But it really is, in biblical times, a metaphor for success. It's sort of a metaphor for peace and, and things being good, things going well in our lives. And this is a promise that keeps getting made to us, that, that eventually there will be peace, there will be tranquility, we will inherit the land, we'll, we'll dwell in God's favor, you'll get the cheese, you'll be happy in the end. So again, I think the question is, how does that happen, and, and for whom does that happen? And I think the first three verses of this psalm really begin to answer that question. They're kind of a theme for the rest of the psalm. It says, do not fret because of evil men or be envious of those who do wrong. For like the grass, they'll soon wither. Like green plants, they'll soon die away. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land, enjoy safe pasture. Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. He'll give you the good things that you wish you had. So what do we see here? Just in these first couple of verses, I think there are three realities. First off, there are evil people. (laughs) It talks about don't fret because of evil people, Uh, Or be envious of them. The second thing it tells us, they cause fear and envy. The presence of bad things, bad people, actually has an impact on us. It causes us to worry. It causes us sometimes to envy the things that they have. Wouldn't my life be better if it just looked like this, if I had all their stuff? And then there's a third reality, and it's there's a promise they will get blown away and the righteous end up inheriting the land. The the righteous end up getting the cheese. But between here and there, there are some practical obstacles. There's some concerns, I think, that the psalm addresses. How do you know for certain that you're going to end up with the cheese? How do you know for certain that you're going to end up being one of those people who is happy and blessed? And what do you have to do to get it? Well, I'm gonna look at at three things here if you're really spiritual and picked up one of those little sheets with a sermon outline on it and are taking notes. The first one was uh, the Psalm contains important imperatives, important imperatives. What's your reaction when you read a passage or hear a sermon that doesn't seem to have much practical application? I know for me, I'm, I'm kind of looking for something I can take home like, you know, pastor talked for a long time, or I read this passage, and I mean, what does this mean to me personally? What does it mean for me today? I'm a little action-oriented. I kind of want some marching orders. Like, what do I do when I leave church today? Or at least I think that's the way I am. That's the trouble with a psalm. With, with an epistle sometimes, particularly when some of Paul's writings and things, you get, you get some specific practical applications. When you read the psalms, sometimes it's almost like watching somebody else's home movies. You know, it's You've got somebody who's writing about something that they're unhappy about or something they're very happy about, or a situation they're going through, and it's like you're watching somebody else's life kind of uh, get played out. When you read through the Gospels, when you read through uh, many of the epistles, you, uh, you end up kind of with, with more practical application examples to follow. But uh, that's not really <laughs> what we see here in Psalm 37. In fact, in the first eight verses, there are 15 what I would call imperatives or admonitions or things to do, 15 of them. Let me read them. Uh, Some of them are repeated a couple of times. First off, don't fret, don't be envious, trust in the Lord, do good, dwell in the land, which is a metaphor for having a good relationship with God, enjoy God's grace, enjoy His protection, delight in the Lord. Commit your way to the Lord, trust in the Lord, be still before the Lord, wait patiently for the Lord, don't fret, refrain from anger, turn from wrath, and don't fret. So, how do you feel when you read the Scriptures and you come across an admonition or an imperative? Do you you instantly, like, write that down, stick it on your mirror? Okay, here's something that I should do this week and commit to doing it. I mean, maybe a few of us do that. But my guess is... (laughs) When you see a list of 15 admonitions, 15 imperatives in just eight verses, it's, it's a little overwhelming, isn't it? Now when I said I want something practical to take away from the Scriptures or from a sermon, uh, really, maybe I lied. I, I mean, I'd like to think that that's what I would like to do because I actually would like to think that I'm actually going to do the things that the Scripture is telling me to do or that I heard in a sermon, but the truth is I usually don't, right? Especially when I see a list of 15 admonitions, I just get depressed, it's overwhelming. You want me to do all of these things, and are all of these things tied to me eventually being happy in the end? Like, this is the requirement? I gotta do 15 things that I find very difficult to do? (laughs) If you and I are not gonna do these 15 things when we leave here, we really sort of put ourselves in in a little bit of a bind, don't we? We run the risk of leaving here not encouraged, but really discouraged. There just has to be another way, right? There has to be another way to come out on top. And there is, and it's this. It's we can admit our weakness and confess to the Lord that we have no ability in and of ourselves to carry out these 15 admonitions, much less the thousands of others that we see in the Scriptures. You see, that's why we need Jesus. If there's anybody here this morning who has the ability to keep God's law, obey all of His commands, do everything that the Scriptures encourage us or even command us to do, then that person doesn't need the gospel. (laughs) But the rest of us do. The rest of us do need the gospel. We're hopelessly flawed, we're desperately weak, and we're really unable to get ourselves out of the situation that we're in. Now, I'm not saying... That when you read the Scriptures you're not obliged to learn from it or to try to keep the the principles, the commands, the imperatives that we see in the Scriptures. We absolutely are. But whether it's the Ten Commandments, the Sermon on the Mount, Paul's epistles, or 15 imperatives in the first 8 verses of of Psalm 37, the law drives us to Christ. The law drives us to Christ. These things that we know that we cannot do should drive us to Jesus and make us understand that it's not about us, it's not about what we can do, because that would be impossible. At the end of the day, it's Christ that we need more than obedience, does that make sense? We're not off the hook, but the law drives us to Jesus and drives us to the gospel. So so here's a takeaway, if you're looking for some marching orders this morning, um, consider these 15 imperatives as really important uh, important principles as really great advice, as things that the Lord expects from us, don't fret, trust the Lord, refrain from anger, delight in the Lord, and all the rest. But when you find yourself falling short on those things, and you will, confess your sin, confess your weakness, your lack of ability to do these things, your lack of ability to obey the Lord, and find grace and forgiveness at the cross. That's a good takeaway that won't make you leave here feeling depressed because of this big list. By the way, before we leave this list of 15 admonitions, um, do you notice that the phrase don't fret is mentioned three times? And that's significant. The command don't fear is the number one most repeated command in the Bible. I've been told, I haven't counted, but I've been told that there are 365 instances of that in the Scriptures, one for every day. I I don't know if the three don't frets here in the psalm are included in that statistic or not, but it's essentially the same thing. It's kind of a stronger word than worry. Don't fret. We don't use that so much anymore, do we? But it really is kind of a stronger word than worry. And you know what worry is? Worry is when you are afraid that what God wants for your life or some situation is different than what you want for your life or that situation. Let me say that again. Worry is when we are afraid that what God wants for my life, for the situation I'm in, is different than what I want for some situation. That's that's the essence of worry. It's really a failure to admit that God is in control and he really knows what's best for me. That's what worry is. It's when I, when I come up against that and I go, no, no, that's not what I want. Um, maybe that's what you want. That's not what I want. And now I'm worrying about it because who's going to get their way, God or me? I think that's the essence of worry. It's really, a, in, a, in a way, it's a failure to submit to his will and his sovereignty. So David says, don't fret three times. And I think what he's saying is, God has a handle on this. Don't don't waste your time trying to impose your will on Him. By the way, that was, that was for free. There's no need to put anything extra in the offering plate for that. that was, but but I, I feel like this, don't fret, that is something that you and I really need to consider. So, let's move on. Uh, important imperatives. The next thing is, uh, this Psalm contains real retribution. Retribution. Verses 12 through 35, and we won't go back and read them again one by one, but they talk a great deal about wicked people. And in almost every verse we see the same pattern. The wicked seem to get the cheese, they seem to be prospering, and then in the end they're frustrated by the Lord and they sort of come to nothing. So let's look at a couple of examples. In verse 12, the wicked plot against the righteous and gnash their teeth at them, but the Lord laughs at the wicked, for He knows their day is coming. Verse 14, the wicked draw the sword and bend the bow to bring down the poor and the needy and slay those whose ways are upright, but their swords will pierce their own hearts, their bows will be broken. 16 and 17, better, that the, uh, better the little that the righteous have than the wealth of many wicked, for the power of the wicked will be broken, but the Lord upholds the righteous. And one more, I've seen the wicked and ruthless man flourishing like a green tree in his native soil, but he will soon pass away, and, but he soon passed away and was no more. Though I looked for him, he could not be found. Over and over we see this pattern in this psalm. The wicked start well, and then they finish last. And it's as if God is sort of mocking them. They, they draw their swords, they look scary and powerful, but then the swords pierce their own hearts. They're mocked, they're humiliated. There's certainly a, judge, a, a reality of judgment and retribution for them, isn't it? And it's worth noting, I think, that wicked people do succeed in this world. It's just a fact of life. If you do evil, there is often a short-term reward. It's kind of like credit card debt. There's, there's a short-term reward when you buy the big screen TV, right? You get to enjoy the football game this afternoon on a huge TV, and then the bill comes due and I can't pay it, and the interest payments are going to kill me, and I'm thinking, wow, that, maybe that was a mistake. You, You do drugs, you feel great. People wouldn't do drugs if it didn't make them feel great. And then they get addicted and their life falls apart. You cheat on a test. You pass the test. And then you fail miserably when there's something you absolutely needed to know that you don't know because you actually, you cheated on the test and didn't learn it. Sin always pays on the installment plan. We don't get the negative results of the bad things that we do until much later, generally, because if we did, if we got the negative results of the bad things we do, we wouldn't do them, right? Why, why would you do a bad thing if you got a bad result immediately? No, in fact, the converse, converse is almost always true that you get, a, you get a good result for doing a bad thing, and then later on, you reap the consequences. Galatians 6 talks about that. And what's even crazier than that is, conversely, the good things we do, they often feel like a negative when we do them. And it's only later that we receive the blessings and the good consequences. Who likes to study for a test? Nobody likes to study for a test. But you study for a test, you get a good grade. You pass the course, you do well, you get, a good, get into a good school, get a good job. I, it's Who likes to exercise and eat healthy? Certainly some of you do, I don't. <laughs> but, uh, but you know, those are good things to do. Not fun for me, but it would be profitable, right, in the end. would be a good thing if we got the positive results of all of the good things that we do of our obedience to the lord when we did them we would always do them we stand up for our faith and sometimes we're mocked or ridiculed or it's uncomfortable or we get a reputation as some kind of a weird christian person and that's negative that doesn't feel good and then in the end people meet jesus and god is glorified and this huge blessing results from that Life is like that. The wicked do often enjoy worldly success, and sometimes they're even really happy, or at least they are happy for a time. But the Scriptures are clear. Apart from the Lord, they ultimately come to nothing. They face the Lord's wrath and judgment. So, here's a question for you. How do you feel about divine retribution? How do you feel when you read these verses about what God does to the wicked people in the end? (laughs) One commentary I read on this section (laughs) actually titled it, The Comfort of Divine Retribution. Now, that's an interesting thought. Am I comforted by the fact that people will be judged? Uh, A number of years ago, uh, we lived in Princeton, New Jersey, and uh, I had a connection with Princeton Seminary at that time. And uh, John Stott, famous author, he's with the Lord now, but this was probably 25 years ago, um, he was coming to speak at the seminary. And at that time, he had just come out with a position on uh, eternal judgment, on hell, that was not popular among evangelicals. I won't go into that whole thing, but he was basically talking about annihilation and the, the idea that when you die, you cease to exist, you don't actually go to hell for eternity. And uh, that was not popular, J.I. Packer, R.C. Sproul, a lot of them were challenging him on this. So he came to speak at the seminary, and I don't remember what the topic was, it wasn't that. But he gave a great address, and I wasn't gonna miss it. He's one of my favorite authors of all time. You should read all of his books. Um, And uh, at the end, he took questions. And I knew this would come up, his Doctrine of Hell. And sure enough, I think it was the first question, A student raised his hand and said, Dr. Scott, Dr. Stott, you've taken a pretty unpopular position on the idea of uh, divine retribution, eternal retribution and and annihilationism, you know. He said, could you just comment on that? Tell us a little bit about your view on that. And John Stott said, I will. He said, but first let me say this. It grieves me that sometimes in the evangelical community, when we talk about hell, we talk about it almost as if we're glad that there are some people who go there. And he said, uh, that that really bothers me. He said, we should never speak about that topic without a tear in our eyes, that there are people who will face God's judgment. And I thought, my gosh, you know, he's not a theologian. He is a pastor. I mean, it wasn't a sterile doctrine to him. It was, there are people who are going to face judgment, and that should grieve us. That should move us to tears. So how do you feel about divine earthly retribution? How do you feel about the ultimate judgment of people? I confess, I do belong for the judgment of people who drive slowly in the left lane and invent computer viruses. There, there has to be a special, special judgment for those people. But... Although the psalm and many other psalms, this psalm and many others, are really full of this kind of language uh, of the wicked being judged, I don't think the message here is that we should delight in it. I think the point is simply that we should know that this is the way things are. There is a certainty of judgment for the wicked, and that helps us make sense of the way things are today. The wicked do seem to flourish for a time, but their time is short. And I think we can take comfort, perhaps, in the fact that God will even the scales. He will judge the wicked. But I don't think we should rejoice in it. Jesus did tell us to love our enemies, to pray for those who persecute us, as difficult as that may be. Well, the last point I want to make this morning, uh, important imperatives, real retribution, and bountiful blessings is the last one. Let's take a look at how the righteous are characterized in this psalm. Over and over, we see that they're blessed, they're honored, They're protected. Here's a list of some of the things that we're told the righteous will get. The desires of their hearts, great peace, an eternal inheritance, constant protection, help from the Lord, refuge, and salvation. That's an impressive list, right? Bountiful blessings. And what makes it more incredible is the fact that you and I don't deserve any of it. We didn't bring anything to the table. We don't deserve God's grace. Remember those 15 admonitions or imperatives, the Ten Commandments, the thousands of others that we read in the, in the Scriptures? Would you say you have kept them well enough to warrant that kind of blessing? Are you good enough to be called righteous in this psalm? I know I'm not. God's bountiful blessing is only a result of His grace. It's getting what we don't deserve. By the way, grace is a term I think that it's a Christian term that sometimes we don't fully understand. We talk about it a lot, and it's, it's absolutely the, the foundation of the gospel is God's grace. I, let me illustrate it this way. There, there was a, a young man, little boy, who did something really bad one time, disobeyed his mom and his dad, and he got sent to his room. And it was pretty bad, and his parents said, you're in your room, like, for the rest of the day, and we'll see you tomorrow. No dinner, no TV, no nothing. Go to your room, stay there. And uh, a couple hours later, his dad walked up, knocks on the door, door opens, and the little boy's standing there. And without a word, the father just says, come with me. Doesn't say a word. They get in the car, they drive down into the little town, and they go to an ice cream shop. Dad's still not saying anything. He orders a couple of ice cream sundaes. They sit down at a table, begin to eat the ice cream. And finally, the little boy's sitting there, has no idea what's going on. Finally, his dad looks at him, and he says, son, where should you be right now? He says, I should be in my room because I was disobedient. He says, yeah. He says, "Uh, but you're not. He says, that's forgiveness. And then he says, you see that ice cream? The boy says, yeah. He says, that's grace. See, grace begins where forgiveness leaves off. God doesn't just zero our account and leave us kind of in this moral neutral. All these blessings that are promised, they're in addition to the forgiveness that we receive through Christ. Christ. We get grace, we get blessings, bountiful blessings. That's an amazing thing. But there's some realism here too in this psalm. It's not all cake and ice cream. It's clear that the righteous, although we receive grace, we're not insulated from suffering. Here are a couple of of verses from this psalm. Verse 18, the days of the blameless are known to the Lord. Their inheritance will endure forever. In times of disaster they will not wither, in days of famine they will enjoy plenty." The righteous experience disaster and famine, according to this psalm. Verse 23, the Lord delights in a man's way, he makes his step firm, steps firm, though he stumble he will not fall, for the Lord upholds him with his hand. The righteous will stumble, according to this psalm. Verse 39, the salvation of the righteous comes from the Lord, he's their stronghold in time of trouble. The Lord helps them, delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in him. It tells us that the righteous have times of trouble and need the Lord's deliverance from wicked people. And we can relate to all of that, right? There's no prosperity gospel here. There's no, you know, follow Jesus and your life will be perfect and everything will be happy and nothing bad will happen to you and, you know, it'll all just be be soup or cake and ice cream. The righteous suffer every difficulty that the wicked suffer. But there's a difference. For one thing, the Lord enters into our suffering with us. Jesus experienced loss, pain, grief, betrayal, human agony. He walks with us in the midst of our suffering. Yesterday, I listened online uh, to the funeral of a a friend um, of ours from New Jersey who had died at the age of 55. Uh, of a terrible battle with cancer. In fact, the pastor, when he preached his sermon, said that Trevor had perhaps suffered more than anybody he'd ever known to suffer with cancer. It was just a brutal battle. Uh, and ultimately, he went to be with the Lord, uh, left two, two small ch- or younger children and, and his wife and lots of friends and ministries. He was an elder in their church. And uh, it was an amazing service, an amazing sermon. Um, but the Williamses were not delivered from trouble. And yet, as the pastor preached, he was recounting all of the Psalms, all of the scriptures that were so important to Trevor, and, uh, and, and that there was hope and there was actually joy in the gospel, but we're not insulated from that. Steve Brown, one of my favorite preachers, once said, I think every time a pagan gets cancer, he allows the, a believer to get cancer just so the Lord, so, just so the world can see the difference. It's worth noting that twice by the way, this is another, another freebie. It's worth noting in this Psalm that twice the righteous are characterized as generous. Verse 21 says, the wicked borrow and don't repay, but the righteous give generously. 28 says, the, they, the righteous, are always generous, they lend freely, their children will be blessed. I think it's interesting that generosity is singled out here as an attribute of the righteous. What is it that makes the righteous generous? Well, when you know who gets the cheese, you can afford to be generous. When you know that what you see in this life is not all there really is, it's not all the reality that there really is, you can live in hope. And when you know that wealth and power and success and reputation and those things are not ultimately the things that are going to bring you satisfaction, they really become less important to you. And I think that's why it's profound here in in the psalm that the righteous are marked as generous people, Remember that story that uh, I began with from my time in China? We had, uh, we had the students separate, and it was interesting, uh, about 75% of them believed that single people are happier, <laughs> and 25% believed that married people are happier. I won't comment on all of that, but, but uh, we let them debate it for a little while. And then I felt like I had a really Holy Spirit-inspired moment. Rather than move on to another topic, I was, this was like my first time doing this in, in China, leading one of these trips and, uh, and teaching in a class. And I turned to the teacher who'd been there several years, and I said, can I, can I go off the board here for a minute and like, not go to the next question? She said, yeah, fine. So I, uh, I had all the kids sit down, and I told them, hey, I know many people, single people, in their 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, and beyond who are extremely happy. And you know, I know many single people in those age groups who are not happy. And I know many married people in their 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, who are very happy. And I know many married people in all of those categories who are not. So it doesn't seem to me like it's really all that important, whether you're single or you're married, in terms of being happy. And so I turned around, and on the board, I wrote this question. I hadn't, didn't have this planned out, but I, I wrote on the, on the board, who am I with a question mark? And I said to kids, hey, this is, I think, the ultimate question. If you can answer that question, you can be happy as a single person. You can be happy as a married person. And I think if you don't know the answer to this question, you're <laughs> as likely to be unhappy as a single person as you are as a married person. Now, of course, in a, in a Chinese classroom, as it would be at NC State or Duke or UNC or anywhere else, any of our high schools or middle schools, I, I couldn't preach the gospel <laughs> at that moment. But, uh, but I could suggest that it's the person who knows exactly who they are in the Lord's eyes who ultimately gets the cheese, who ultimately can find peace and happiness and satisfaction. So, so who are you this morning? One of the righteous or one of the wicked? None of us are righteous, and all of us are wicked. But because of Christ, the wicked who trust in Jesus are righteous. And it's not because we can keep 15 admonitions or 10 commandments or thousands of other precepts in the Scriptures. It's because of the righteousness of Christ that He gives us. It's the grace. It's getting more than... It's not not getting what we... It's not not getting what we deserve, it's getting what we don't deserve. It's the righteousness of Christ on our account. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, he says, Jesus has become for us our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. So the gospel is for all of us this morning. Whether you've known Jesus for many years, or whether this morning, maybe this is the first time you're considering asking, like, what would this be like to trust Jesus, to live for him, to call myself a Christian, to to accept that gift and that grace, regardless of where you stand this morning, cast yourself on his righteousness, on his grace. Because we can't do this this, this alone. We don't get the cheese on our own. No matter how hard we work, no matter how good we are, But as we trust in Christ, as we trust in his righteousness, as we rely on the Lord for all of these things, he stands ready to receive us, to forgive us, and to bless us. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you this morning for your word. Thank you for the way that it instructs us and encourages us. And I pray, Father, that that each of us this morning, having heard these words, would, would have a new appreciation for what you offer us in the gospel And Father, I pray that each of us in our hearts would would do business with you this morning. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.